The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading for this morning is from Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to you, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. <laughs> for, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, and each would or, and watch at Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man who would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up the people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name. The Lord and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You may be seated. 
If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. Good morning. My name is Ben. We're uh, glad y'all are here this morning. Uh, you could be anywhere. Um, felt like a Mary Joseph kind of, we needed like uh, barnyard animals in here. To, it's awesome. Um, well, uh, we are in a sermon series uh, for Advent. Advent is uh, something that comes around every year, and it's uh, looking at the uh, anticipation of Jesus coming and dwelling among us and, and celebrating Jesus' birth. And uh, this year for Advent, we're uh, looking at passages in the whole of Scripture that look at the idea of God dwelling with his people. Um, this is not simply an idea that's seen in this passage or this passage, but rather the entire body of Scripture looks at that idea and attests to it. And so we're looking at um, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 last week, uh, Exodus 33 this week, and then we'll look at two more next two weeks uh, in the New Testament. Uh, but we should note that these are all pointing to the grand uh, idea of the grand narrative of Scripture, which is God will be with his people. He will. And he will dwell uh, with them. And so this morning, as we look at an Old Testament passage, it may be tempting to think, well, this is just with an Old Testament God who's um, angry or uh, capricious. Um, we don't know how to really pin him down or, or really uh, figure out what he's going to do next. And it's actually kind of the opposite. We get in a, a picture of a relational God who works and operates near his people. No matter what happens, his sight is set on being with his people. Uh, and this morning we'll see uh, the Israelites have left Egypt in the Exodus, hint the book that we're reading from. Uh, they've left the Exodus and they're going towards the promised land and they're in the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place of the in-between, right? You've, you've tasted bits of deliverance, but you're not quite there. And I would offer to us this morning that that is maybe where you are this morning. That you're in this wilderness of, of tasting bits of deliverance, but really waiting for the real taste of it. What God has really promised you. And so with that in mind, as... We are in this in-between place. I would offer to you that this is our story. God does dwell with us. Um, if you look in your, your bulletin, you'll see a um, quote, and maybe on the screen behind me. Uh, it says, um, if we view it, it being the Bible, if we view it as a single unfolding story, it can be tremendously exciting. Such a story invites us, compels us to get involved as we enter deeply into the story of the Bible, God will be revealed to us. We will also find ourselves called to share the mission of God and his purposes with the creation. After all, the Bible claims to be nothing less than God's own true story of our world. And it calls us to appropriate this story for ourselves. And so uh, what I want to do this morning, take a quick moment in a sermon series on dwelling and God dwelling with us and, and in the season of Advent, I want to take a moment and, and do what this quote says and enter in. Um, where this Christmas season do you need God? He's promised so much. Where do you need him to dwell with you and be, and be present with you? 
because you're feeling the absence of him. So I'm going to just let's spend a moment together and just think through that as we look at this passage. Lord, we don't just want things from you, but we need you. And that is seen in how Jesus comes and embodies um, the story that we know well, uh, the manger scene and uh, the birth of Christ that we're celebrating these next few weeks. But Lord, may this story, uh, this particular year and this particular time and place, may it be a story that affects us and that we are compelled to enter into because that's our story. That Jesus didn't come just for the world, but also for us individually because he longs to be our king. King Jesus, meet us this very moment. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we look at Exodus 33, we'll look at uh, three main ideas. First is the agony of absence. Second, the promise of presence. And third, the gift of glory. Uh, So first, the agony of absence. We're we're picking up in the 33rd chapter of a book. So we're we're just dropping right in. So what's come before this? What is the context? Uh, In Exodus, the first uh, 18 chapters are about the Exodus which is the people being slaves in Egypt and God delivering them to the, the, the Red Sea and taking them to the Promised Land. And Exodus 19 is a chapter where God says, I want to have a, a define the relationship moment. I want to say um, and remind the people who I am to them and who they are to me. And there's this covenant made with God where God says these things. And Moses goes on to Mount Sinai, up to Mount Sinai to meet with God and and, and be in the presence of God. And uh, after that, uh, there are chapters on two things, uh, the Ten Commandments that are given and then uh, the blueprints for the tabernacle. Now, we think that uh, the Ten Commandments, that's just rules, right? Just things to not do, don't do, don't do. When in fact, they're, they're bylaws for how the people should act because they belong to God. God is saying, this is what you should do because you belong to me and how everyone will know the beauty of me by these things. And the tabernacle were plans that were also given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is this place given to uh, the people of Israel because it's God saying, I'm going to be with the people. I'll be with them. They're my people, and I will be with them. And it's in this place that they will meet, and that all the people of Israel will camp around the center of the camp, which is where the tabernacle is. The God's dwelling place with man is in the center of everything, and it's filled with the Garden of Eden imagery, saying this is what it used to be like in in the glory days, but we will return to it. So Moses has the Ten Commandments and the blueprints for the tabernacle, and he's on Mount Sinai, and he begins to walk down uh, the mountain. And what does he find? Um, He has this great news for his people, and his people have uh, made a golden calf and are worshiping it in Exodus 32. 
They've broken the first two commandments they were about to receive, which is uh, have no other gods before me and don't worship idols. And then enter Exodus 33. What is God going to do with these people who are worshiping other gods and ignoring what he's done for them? What is God going to do with them? And in verse 1, you can see in your Bible or in your bulletin, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Pezzarites, Hivites, Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God is saying the, the offense against him of breaking those first two commandments uh, makes it so that the transgression is so great that he can't go with his people. Their unholiness and his holiness uh, makes it so that the potential of God ceasing to exist with them is a great issue. But he's saying, I'll tell you what, I'll give you everything you want. Everything I promised you, I will give you. Uh, he says, I'll give you land that I promised the descendants. I'll, I'll send an angel to, to wipe out the enemy that's in the land. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the milk and honey that was promised. But notice the language he uses here. He says, not my people who came out of Egypt, but the people. And not my angel, but an angel. He's using impersonal language and showing that Israel can't live with God because of what's happened, what has transpired. He's going to give them everything he's promised them, but he's not going to give Israel himself because of what's happened. And the question is, how would you react? How would we react? Uh, God is saying, I'm going to give you everything that I promised you. It's yours. It's all yours. You'll have land uh, uh, no enemies, prosperity, which means something in our day, but it means everything in their day. It means they've arrived. They're, they're, they're successful and strong and safe. And God's going to give it to them. He's going to give them something they haven't had for 400 years because for 400 years they were slaves in Egypt and they worked for their captor, uh, the Egyptians. So if you were a slave, let's just think about it for a second, for 400 years, and you, everything you did went to the people who were uh, your captors, how would you respond if God says, I'm going to give you everything you want? Uh, you would say, thank you, and have another. This is great. Wouldn't you have, as a slave for 400 years, an appetite for prosperity that when you're given it, you would take it? Um, my daughter is, our daughter, yeah, it's not just mine, um, is nine months old, and we're doing the new food thing. And uh, so yesterday, made a great little banana avocado mush smoothie, um, and I, we, I was feeding her, and um, she was making a little bit of a mess, so I went to go get a paper towel and stepped away, and she began to lose it. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is so sweet. She misses her father. This is wonderful. So um, I, went to, I went back to her. I tested my theory out, and I, I put that, that brown mush in front of her, and I walked away. And I was thinking, she's going to lose it again. Her dad's not here. And she was very content, actually. I'd love to tell you. Um, she was just, just peachy. 
Uh, and it goes to show uh, she got the very thing she wanted and she had no need for me. I was just a vehicle for what she could get. That's what God is saying. He's saying, I, I'll be your vehicle. I'll give you everything you want. I'm not going to go with you. But you'll have everything you've ever wanted. How would you respond with a kingdom without a king? With, with all of the accolades, with no accountability whatsoever, that you have the benefits of God with no cost of belonging to God. And yet, that's something that is proposed to the Israelites, and it causes agony in them. This agony of the absence of God is something that, that, that sits in them. They have to do something about it. It says in verse 4 on, it says, When the people heard this distressing, these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. The Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. They can't live with God because they're unholy, but they can't live without God because they know it's the end of the road for them. The thought of God not being with them distresses them, causes agony in them because they know the road stops there. One theologian has said, nonetheless, those who do not want God do want goodness and happiness. But what makes anything good is God. Where God withdraws, there can be no good. C.S. Lewis echoes this when he says, hell is the absence of God. It's, there's no goodness in hell because there is no, God isn't there. As First Thessalonians also says, God is out. He's saying, the transgressions are so great, I can't be with you. He's holy, so he can't be with the people, but the people must have him so the people can't live without him. The agony of absence. So where in your life do you feel this agony? That the promises of God have been given to you, and yet there's an itching in you that says there must be more. There, there, there's more to this. I'm feeling and I'm, I'm reaping the benefit of it, but there must be more. Or maybe you are uh, in the place where if you just had a little more promises from God, then the presence of God would be sweet. You know, it'd be thrown in with the deal. The agony of absence, if God is there, makes the, pre the promises of God hollow uh, to the people of Israel. Which brings us to this next idea of, of the, the promise of presence. Moses goes, and you can see in this illustration, he goes... Um, where the tabernacle would be in the middle and the people would be around it, God meets with Moses outside of the camp because in the camp is impurity, unholiness. There's been idolatrous worship. So Moses leaves the camp and goes out to the tent of meeting to meet with God and settle things. And the people are watching. And you can see that God is there meeting with him at the tent of meeting because the pillar of fire and the cloud by day are there. God is there and the people are watching and we get a glimpse into what this conversation looks like. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So it seems like the the matter is settled. Uh, Moses says, uh, give us your presence. We have to have your presence. And um, this is your nation. This is yours. And God says, I'll give you my presence, and I'll, I'll give you rest. But if we grammatically examine this, it says the singular you. So he says, Moses, I'm not going to give the people my presence. I'm going to give you my presence. And I'm not going to give them rest. I'm going to give you rest. Moses has been given the very thing the people he represents want so badly. So don't you think that there would be a slight hint of spiritual hubris, right? Of of, um, spiritual self-pride that he has what everyone else wants. And Moses doesn't lean into that. But instead he goes back to God and he says, no, 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 no. Verse 15, then Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know what you are pleased with, that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses turns down the blessing of God if it's just for himself. And he turns down the blessing of God if it doesn't go with all of the people. He's a man who's speaking and going uh, to the plate for his people. He wants his people to have the promise and the presence of God. In one of my favorite movies, Walk the Line, um, there's a scene. It's a, it's a story in a movie about Johnny Cash, and it chronicles his life. And there's a scene in it where um, young Johnny Cash has been touring, and um, he's beginning to make it, right? He's hitting these stops and really gaining ground and uh, fans and acclaim. Well, he has enough money that he, he buys his family a new house, and Uh, It's moving day. This scene takes place on moving day. He's sitting in his kind of study area um, with boxes around him, and he's laying in a chair, um, half asleep with a cigarette, exhausted. And his uh, wife comes in, and his wife is pregnant and um, stressed. Those those don't always go together. Um, But she comes to him, and they begin to talk. And their conversation then turns into an argument. And his wife is unhappy because she feels like her husband's distant from her and her family. And finally, Johnny Cash, in this argument, uh, stands up and, and says to his wife with much passion, he says, what do you want from me? I got you your dream house, all your things, all your pretty little things. I got you your car. What do you want from me? And quickly... And passionately, his wife responds, I want you, John. I want you and everything you promised me. The loneliness of getting everything you want without the presence of the one who gives it is a hard place to be. And Moses is saying to God, do not just give us things, but give us yourself. Because if you don't go with us to this promised land, we don't want to go. I know you've given me your blessing and me your presence, Moses says, but the people need it. 
also. We need it. So with that in mind, we need to put a correct valuation on God's presence. That's what Moses is begging for the people. Um, one popular, and rightfully so, uh, chapter in Scripture is Psalm 51. It shows David's repentance from great sins. And the great sins are uh, sleeping with um, another woman that wasn't his wife, killing uh, the husband of the woman he slept with because he realizes uh, that um, she now has a baby by him. And then he lies about it and covers his tracks. This is the person that God has promised to work through, and this is what he's done. And he's repenting before God, and and Psalm 51 is is a really honest chapter of how repentance looks, what repentance looks like, and going before the Lord. And, And one thing that David prays for God to not take from him is not his pride, right, not his ego, He says, God, in verse 11 of Psalm 51, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. So, the bottom of the barrel is where the people of Israel are in the wilderness after the threat and the agony of God being absent. And David is also at the bottom saying, God, I've done these awful things. Please don't take your presence from me because that kind of presence is the restorative medication that the people of God need. The the promise of presence is more than just him being with them. It's actually how they operate holistically and fully. That's what they fully need is a restorative medication of God's presence. Where in your life do you need a restorative medication of God's presence? Where you have sin that you keep battling with and you don't just want to stop doing it. Or maybe there's a shame that keeps on indicting you, and you don't just want relief from it. You want more than that. And there's relationships with strain where you don't just want silence. But in all of those things and more, you want a restorative medication that God says, I will be with you. As you go forward, I'm with you every step of the way. Because my presence is more precious than anything you could ever have or I could ever give to you. The correct valuation of God's presence. And sure enough, in verse 17, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I'm pleased with you and know you by name. This Christmas season, what parts of your life do you long for God to be present in as he commits himself to you? And how does the Christmas story of Jesus coming down and incarnating speak to that? Like I said at the beginning, this is a story of a relational God. Um, He's not this capricious Old Testament, harsh, uh, war-tearing God, but it's one who's relationally connected to his people. He talks to them, and they, they talk to him. And so this morning, maybe you need to go to God. Maybe it's been a long time. And you need to go to God and say, if you're not with me in this, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do this. I need your presence. And maybe you're actually, maybe in a season of life on the other end where you're waiting and it's radio silence and you're waiting for God to speak to you and and comfort you and and give you his presence and give you things that remind you he's still good and still working and still 
uh, in your life. And you need to hear from him, like verse 17 says, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and know you by name. Wherever it is, you need this. The promise of presence uh, changes everything because God says, I'm going to extinguish the agony that absence threatens and I'm going to commit myself to my people. So the agony of absence extinguished by uh, the promise of God's presence to his people. But last, there's the idea of the, the gift of glory. Moses has gone to bat. He's gone to this tent of meeting. And he's gone to bat for his people. And it seems like things are good, right? Things, God's promise and presence are now combined. He, he talked to God and begged him. But he asks for one more thing, kind of the icing on the cake. To seal the deal, he says, show me your glory. Verse 18, then Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on the rock. When my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Uh, the gift of glory is two things to us. Uh, first, it's what we need. We need this gift of glory. It's, it seals the deal to what God says, I will be present. What we need is glory. Humanity uh, in Genesis 1 used to dwell with God in the garden happily and perfectly. And, and God was, um, and humanity were together and they could see his glory. And yet sin entered in and changed the narrative and said, uh, there is something in between God and his people and his transgression. And because of that transgression, they can't perfectly uh, with, uh, take in and see the full glory of God. Can't look at him. It's too much. And yet we see in this story that he's going to find a way to show himself to his people. He's going to find a way to say, I don't, I'm not just lip service to this uh, promise of presence. I will show you who I am. I'll show you my glory. I will be with you. So what do we make about this cleft in the rock that it talks about? God will not let anything get between him and his people. Nothing. And whatever it is, he will extinguish. He is so committed to dwelling with them that he's going to put you in the exact place he wants you to show you exactly who he is. The story of Christmas is that coming of saying nothing can stand in the way. One author has said it this way. He said, his coming, Christ's coming at Christmas, his coming stands as an affirmation that he will not relent. He will not be satisfied until sin and suffering are no more and we are like him, dwelling with him in unity, peace, and harmony forever and ever. The story of Christmas is the story of God saying, what you need is the fullness of my glory. You don't have to uh, be put in the cleft of a rock and, and, and hide yourself anymore because I have come to you. I will show you my glory in the sun. Because the only way that the, the promise of presence in the desert and the promise of presence to us 
is that God says, I'll give you my glory and it will always be good and will never leave you. We need a gift of glory and a faithful presence that goes hand in hand and that we see that in the coming of a baby in a manger. That the person of Christ is the answer to uh, the things that we pose, things that say, um, show me your glory. And also our plea to him that says, if you don't go with us, we can't go forward. Perfect glory, uh, perfect faithful presence. It's exactly what we need. And it's exactly what we're given. And then last, it's not just what we need, it's also what we're made for. This is not just a reception of a promise or, or a presence or a glory, but it's something that transforms and changes us. And the story of Christmas is something that's supposed to change us. That when we taste the glory of the one who comes in a manger, it begins to permeate the spheres of our life that bow a knee and say, this is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one. The Christian life is a journey of cultivating a heart that is full when it is in the presence of God. Someone famously said that, that God is most glorified in us and we're most satisfied in him. And so the last thing I'd leave you with is this. In the Christmas season, in the search of satisfaction, where do you need the glory of God to increase because you know it's the perfect presence in your life? of Someone who's come to say, I am here in a manger. I'm here for you to transform all of your life. Let's pray. Lord, we are a people that need to know that our God is a living God because it is easy to feel and look at the world around us and say, our God is one who's silent. Maybe others say that. Maybe our, our God is silent and absent. But Lord, would you remind us that you are a king who doesn't withdraw, but instead leans into our experience to the point where you incarnate and you're with us. Jesus, would you be to us someone who says, I'm the fullness of God and God is pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus. Be with us this day when we need reminders of redemption that you are up to something and that the story is not over. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.